and we are in Revelation chapter 1 today. Man, I am so excited, if you didn't notice that last week, about being in the book of Revelation. Um, it is one of the few books that promises blessing upon those who read it. And it's interesting to me that here the book of Revelation, which says, blessed are those who read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy, but it is one of the most avoided books in the Bible, if not the most avoided. It isn't something Christians tend to read on their own. It's not something pastors tend to teach on. Um, I've had several people say, I grew up in the church, and I have never had somebody teach through the book of Revelation. Uh, maybe point to it. Maybe read a section out of it. But to, to study the whole book. Um, and I love it because I, I do believe that there's a blessing. And the blessing that comes to us, first of all, that I mentioned last week, is it causes us to look up, right? Even as we read all these things, like John John has already seen all of the things, and there are some horrific things that take place during the tribulation. But again and again, he says, even so, Lord Jesus, come, right? And that's what it does. Though, though we study these things, and we're like, that's intense. That's heavy. That's a lot of people dying. But even so, Lord Jesus, come. It causes us to look up, look for his return, to know that it's near. And that's the blessing to us, right? To first, well... And I guess along with that blessing is that we also are reminded we serve the God that knows the end from the beginning. That the things that he has laid out for us, just like the prophecies about the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, were fulfilled so perfectly that we can be sure that the things that are still ahead of us now are going to continue to be fulfilled perfectly. And that's the God that we serve. Do you know that there aren't any other religions in the world that dare to approach prophecy? If they do, they are super vague. Very, very just could be mean anything. And in the Old Testament, God points out, this is what sets me apart from everybody. I know the end from the beginning. And as we read Revelation, again, the blessing that falls to us is, is being reminded, and that is the God that we serve. Uh, there's a lot of confusion that we looked at as we started chapter 1 last week. A lot of confusion when it comes to the book of Revelation. And there's, there's many reasons. I think two of the ones that I've come across most often are that people tend to take it out of order. They jump around, and they'll read one passage or one chapter, and they're like, well, this actually takes place before the chapters before it, and, and they kind of slice it and dice it, and it makes it becomes completely unable to understand. Very confusing, very frustrating. The other thing is when it comes to the symbols that are used in the book of Revelation, uh, people just kind of make it up as they go along. They'll read something, well, I think it's this, and I think it's that. We can't do that when it comes to the Bible. That the pictures and the symbols that are given to us are the same ones that have been used over and over again. And so it requires study that when we see the pictures shown or symbols given, that we look back either to other parts of the New Testament or especially the Old Testament to go, and this is what it meant there, right? It, it get, gives us a direction to go in. doesn't mean we're going to get it all. doesn't mean we're going to get every single detail, but it is going to give us enough that we remember that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This is revealing his character like we've never seen it. And for John, who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus for years, who who sat around and ate with him, who had conversations that aren't recorded, you know, all of these things, John knew Jesus. For him, as we'll see today, his mind gets absolutely blown. I thought I knew Jesus, but I didn't know this side of Jesus, right? Not that Jesus has changed at all, but man, the revelation of all he is and all that we can understand of it is coming our way. Now, another thing with Revelation, I did not get into this last week, but the Revelation, really futuristic prophecy uh, itself, there's a double-edged sword to it. So as we started last week, uh, we get this great promise about Jesus, part of the description of Jesus in verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And that's love. That he loved us that much. And we go, man, the love of Jesus. And it should just overwhelm us, right? But the other side of that is we're going to see this absolute justice that gets carried out upon the earth. The other side of the sword, right? There's this beautiful side that we see in the love that Jesus has for us, the love that he has for the church. But man, we also will see the absolute evil of mankind and how God must bring this age of man to an end. Um, as we get into the second part of chapter 2 today. And we'll finish the chapter, uh, Lord willing. But we're going to come across really the outline for the whole book of Revelation. And I mentioned this last week. But in verse 19, the Lord tells John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Well, the things which he has seen is kind of what gotten us, has gotten us up to speed so far in chapter 1. The things which are are going to be the seven letters to the seven churches. So that's chapters 2 and 3. And then the things that will, be, or the things that will take place after this uh, will be chapters 4 through 22. All right? And that's really the breakdown of the whole book of Revelation. Uh, it's a very simple outline, but again, it's important. Uh, and we're going to get into more as we uh, go further on into it to understand why it's important. The events uh, leading through up to the tribulation, through the tribulation again, are in a chronological order. And that, as I said, people will take it out of chronological order and just make a mess out of it. The second half of chapter 1, we see this powerful an important picture of Jesus that's revealed to John. And uh, so, let's pray one more time, and we'll get into the second half of chapter 1. God, again, we want all that you have for us. Jesus, we want to be blown away by who you are. Not who we think you are, not who we've tried to make you to be, but who you are. And God, we just submit this time to you. Submit ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place and in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be starting from verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This was written at a time of terrible persecution. This was when Rome was going full on at the Christians. John, as I've mentioned before, is the last of the disciples. All the rest of them have been put to death. And they have tried twice to execute John. Uh, Once by poisoning him or making him drink poison. The second was by trying to boil him in oil. Now, we don't know the state of John afterwards. If he was just like, hey, I feel fine, (laughs) or what it was. He's a very elderly man at this point. It doesn't really matter. Either way, he came out alive. And so finally, they're like, you know what? We're just going to stick him on this island. What can he do there? How can he influence the church from Patmos? It's impossible. Um, And it, it, it was a rough place. The island of Patmos was a prison colony. And so while there were probably other people that were innocent, like John, that they had you know, rounded them up because they spoke against Rome or whatever. Not enough to execute, but enough that they wanted them out of the way. Most of the people there were hardened criminals. So <laughs> it's not the greatest place. And, and I just love the fact that there's John on this little island. And from what I understand, it is pretty desolate. He writes this letter after receiving the revelation. In verse 9, he says, Your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. I've had people point to that, and uh, where John says, Your companion in the tribulation. And they'll say, See, John thought he was in the tribulation. John thought that at least he was going to go through the tribulation. We need to understand the word tribulation is used a lot in the scriptures. The only time it's referring to the great tribulation is when it calls it the great tribulation. Uh, We'll see when we look at Matthew 24, which is on our schedule, that Jesus speaks about the tribulation of the world, but he's not speaking about the great tribulation yet. It's leading up to it. And so we need to know that not every time the words used, it's speaking of the great tribulation. It's also called the day of the Lord. Um, And as John's speaking about this tribulation they're in, it's the tribulation of persecution. It's that Rome has gone against the church, gone after the church. And really as proof of that, or the thing that points to that most of all, is that he's on the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God. That he's there as a prisoner for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, he begins to give, give a description of what took place. Right? This is the beginning of it all. Though he's, kinda, he's already seen it all. He's now recounting it to us there in, in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I think this scene is different from whatever we picture. I, I think that the way it went down is probably very, very different. And it's, again, it's one of those I look forward to getting to heaven and getting the DVR out and watching the replay of this whole thing, going, wow, yeah, I didn't quite have it all right. Because I know for years, I pictured it as this very serene, very quiet thing. But when you just look at some of the details, 
That's not all that's going on. That was where it starts, right? John says that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So John is in this place of worship. It doesn't mean that he was working up the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that he was you know, getting himself in the zone or making the, the Holy Spirit move. It's none of that. It just means that he was in this time of worship. And those are sweet times. I mean, if we, I hope all of us have experienced that. Uh, there's no formula to it. You know, sometimes it might be that you're reading the Word of God or that you're even reading a devotion or in prayer or just singing a worship song or maybe it's in absolute silence and suddenly you just sense the power of the Holy Spirit right there right? That's what John's talking about. And I was just in the Spirit. And I picture John, I guess I picture myself in John's place, which is very different. Myself is, my Bible's open, cup of coffee, I'm sitting in my comfy chair, right? And I'm just like, yeah, just enjoying the Lord and just like stoked. And you just get that sense of the Holy Spirit, right? And you're just like, man, this is the best place. What could be better than this? And then there's this interruption, so John's just like, yeah, Lord, me and you, right? And then he says that there is a loud voice. Not the still, small voice, not the whisper, John. <laughs> I'm the Alpha and Omega. <laughs> you know, it just like ruins everything. It just completely takes him out of, out of this quiet zone that he was in with the Holy Spirit. And it's a, he, he can't even find the words to describe it. As, as he tries to, I mean, first of all, loud, of course, that's important. Um, And I believe that the Holy Spirit was giving him this preparation time, but this loud voice, he says, like a trumpet. Again, we get, I think we get the wrong idea because we picture a trumpet as a musical instrument or maybe even a trumpet like back in the, you know, days of King Arthur or whatever, do, 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 you know, kind of trumpet, uh, Trumpet was only used for two main things in John's day. To call for battle or that the king had just arrived. And in this case, it's both. It was shocking. It was abrasive. It was a sound that invoked fear in people. And so it wasn't this, again, still small voice. And John's like, yes, Lord, is that you? (laughs) It's terrifying. Man, it's a blast. It is a, it, it's loud. And John, I, I don't know, again, I picture him freezing. You know that adrenaline moment where suddenly just boom, and you can't do anything but freeze. You're just like, ha, 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 ha. Somebody slams the door and scares you or whatever. You're just like, ha. <laughs> That's kind of how I picture John, just freezing in his place. And the Lord says, uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the Greek alphabet, I'm sure most of you guys know this, not all of you. That's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But there's a lot more to it than that. The, the saying isn't just the idea of like, I'm the first and the last. That's the very like surface meaning. It's not only am I the first and the last, I own everything in between. It all belongs to me. I have absolute authority before the beginning began and after the ending ends is me. That's the idea. The all-powerful, almighty, above it all. First and the last of everything. And he tells them to write down and then send this book to the seven churches. So understand, when we get into the letters, or we call them the letters to the seven churches. 
But it isn't like he just took the section to Ephesus and gave that to Ephesus. They received all seven letters and the entire revelation. They got the whole story delivered to them. The whole book of Revelation was given to the churches. Now, why these seven churches? And why seven? Why not nine churches? Why not every church? Well, as I mentioned last week, these churches, though they're, they vary in size, it's not like they're all huge, wealthy churches. Few of them are. There's also small churches that are flat broke and barely getting by. But they all became very influential churches. They were also in this area that was a main trade route. And they're in that order, the same order that they, he lists them here, and the same order that they're written in, is the same order they were on this trade route. And from there, the word would go out. We know in Paul's day, just, just in Ephesus, when Paul kind of stopped traveling for a while, he started this like school of ministry thing there in Ephesus, and it said that all of Asia, meaning what we consider kind of the area of Turkey, it's not the Asia we think of, but all of that area and beyond were reached with the gospel just from Ephesus. So now these other cities were also influential in their own way, and the word would go out from there. But why seven? It may have been there was only seven at that time. We don't know. There could have been other little house churches and things like that, but the seven main churches. But seven's an important number, both in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, they did something that we don't really do, where numbers have significance. I mean, we, we use them for math, and that's about it. But in Hebrew and in Greek, numbers had meaning. Biblically, the number seven is the number of completion, right? And it isn't just like, okay, something's done, seven. Uh, it's like an absolute fulfillment. So the idea of seven days in a week, that week is absolutely fulfilled. When Jesus was asked, how many times must I forgive my brother? He said, 70 times seven. It doesn't just mean a lot. It means until it's absolutely complete. When it's brought to an absolute fulfillment. These seven churches represent all of the church throughout all time. Every church that has ever existed and exists now fit into one of these seven categories. And I, I take it even a little bit further. And again, this is my opinion, so take it as that. But I think that each of these seven churches also represents all of us individually. It represents every family, every marriage falls into one of these seven categories. And for us, as we get into studying these seven churches, man, my prayer is we're going to be convicted and encouraged as we see the things of, that's got to change in me. That's got to change in my family or in my marriage or in my church, right? This isn't just written to seven churches that existed and are gone. It's written to the entire church throughout history, not just the buildings, well, not the buildings at all, but not just the gathering of people, but all of the people within that gathering. It is written to the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. All right, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. 
Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head was his head and hair were like white excuse me, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Again, John is in this great, again, I picture the morning devotion time, in the spirit, and boom, there's this voice, and he turns around, and instead of just seeing an individual there, he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, I, I have seen artwork and people describe this as seven menorahs, which are the seven, you know, which are the, the lamp that was there in the temple was the menorah. That's not what this is described. And it, it is important, significance to what is described here is a common Jewish oil lamp. That it's on a stand, but it's very basic. These are covered in gold, also significant. And I think, as we'll see, we'll go a little bit further here, and we're going to see that these lampstands represent the churches. And I just think it's the perfect picture of what a church is and what it's supposed to be about, right? Because the purpose of a lampstand is simply to hold up the light. That's all it's for. That's its design. That's its purpose. If it isn't doing that, it's useless. It's collecting dust, right? And the church's purpose is to hold up the light of Jesus. And that's what we're for. What amazes me is how often we start looking at other churches and we look at you know their programs and we look at the size of the congregation or the money they have or the influence or the political side of things that they're involved in and all that. But what we're looking at more often than not is the lampstand. We get obsessed with what the, what the lampstand looks like rather than looking at the light above it. Right? It is about Jesus. And if the church ceases to be about Jesus, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It doesn't matter how much activity it has. And we're going to see that as he addresses the churches, that that's the case with some of them, is that they have completely lost their focus. And again, a lamp that doesn't hold up the light is nothing. It's worthless. Now, as I said, while these are common, they're also beautiful because they're Gold. Gold throughout the Old Testament is a picture of God's deity, his almighty power, his eternity, all of those things. And so this common lamp is beautiful because of God's power upon it. And that's all. It isn't any work they've done, it isn't any sacrifice they've made, program they've created. Their beauty is from his presence upon them, period. And there's another great picture of that, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is made out of very common acacia wood. It was everywhere. But it is completely covered in gold. You know, that's a picture of us believers, that we are as common as common gets, but we are covered by him, and then 
His power, His Holy Spirit is placed within us. Just like the Ark of the Covenant. So these common lamps have been made beautiful. John sees them all, takes note of them, but says that in the midst of them is one like the Son of Man. Uh, And I wonder if, if it's at this point that he realized who this was. I think he did to some degree. Uh, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man on many occasions. And so, again, he's like, I think this is where he's like, it looks like Jesus, but this isn't the Jesus I completely remember, right? There's, there's definitely a familiarity to him, but he said, like the Son of Man. Uh, and that's an interesting term. Like I said, Jesus used it about himself. The Son of Man, uh, it could be a very humble term. It's to say, well, I'm just a person, basically. And we see David use that when he said, who am I or who is the Son of Man that you would be mindful of me? Right? And it's a humble way. I'm just a person. I'm nobody special. But in the Jewish mindset, it was also a title of absolute authority. And we see that in Daniel chapter 7. Um, you want to make note of that. Daniel chapter 7. Starting in verse 13, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that the peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. See, I think John, when he turned and saw Jesus, he went, this is the Son of Man. Both the humble Jesus that I know and the one that Daniel spoke of. That he will be the one whose kingdom will never end. Now, John already knew that, but I think this was where he's seeing it with his own eyes. He is clothed with a robe down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest, which was the picture of the high priest. And he is the perfect high priest. Now, this description is intense. And there's parts of it like, what does that mean? Eyes of fire, sword coming out of his mouth. We'll get to that part. But they're all important. Again, this is important for John. It's important for us because... This is the Jesus that we don't think of a lot. I think we tend to think of Jesus, T-shirt and jeans Jesus. Jesus that meets us right where we're at. Jesus that no matter what we're going through is like, bro, I know where you've been. I've been right there. You know, and, and that's important. All right? That's our, our connection to Jesus in a very personal way. But this is the side we don't see a lot. This is the intensity of who he is of who he is in in entirety, of who he is, right? And these are also the things that are described here will be how he is addressed or how he um, speaks to the churches about himself. To these seven churches, he identifies himself to each one of them with parts of this description here because they need to see Jesus in a different way than they are. So first of all, his eyes of fire. That one's pretty, I mean, just like normal, you look at it and go, okay, I get that that's super intense. 
The idea is that it is a refining fire. That fire refines. And the idea is that he sees all, knows all perfectly. While we just get bits and pieces of information, he's got it all. And I think, you know, so many of us have been in those places where like, I don't know why the Lord would do that. How could he allow that? Why does this person live and that person die? You know, when we get to heaven and we get the information that he's always had, we'll go, okay, it does make sense. (laughs) Because he's got it all. All of his decisions and judgments are perfect. And the eyes of fire is a picture of all of that. His feet of brass. Uh, In the Old Testament, brass, uh, both the items in the temple and other times that items are brought up in an important way of being of brass, speaks of judgment. Um, And this is a double meaning to it. Because not only is there judgment on its way for the world, but the fact that it's his feet are important because it's also pointing to the judgment he has walked through for us. So it isn't just the big, scary, oh no, he's going to judge the world. It's that he's already faced judgment for the world. Not just believers, for everyone. He has faced it all. He has paid every price for every sin ever committed. And it's also this picture of the dividing line. Because if we won't receive the judgment that he's walked through on our behalf, then we will be forced to face it on our own. It's one or the other. There's no gray area. There's no getting out of it. Either you receive what he's done, the fire he's walked through, the judgment he's passed through for us, or we got to face it on our own. Then John says that he had the voice of many waters. Now, again, we can have lots of different ideas what this might be. It could, we might think, well, it's the ocean on a big day, man, and the waves are crashing that's close. Some would say, no, it's a mighty river that's just roaring by. Again, close, but not exactly what's being described here. It's actually the idea of a massive waterfall and that you're at the base. It is the roar of the water pounding against the ground, rushing. And I, don't, I, I love waterfalls. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I love to sit at the base of huge waterfalls. It's a rush. I mean, it is like a full adrenaline-pumping rush to just this massive amount of water, and you feel the ground rumbling under your feet. You're right next to all this power, but at the same time, you're like, but I'm safe. I'm safe right here. You know, I, when Doug and I went hiking in one of the valleys, we went all the way back. It took forever. All the way back, and we go to this, uh, this waterfall, and it was pretty cool. Same thing, but the bigger, the better. And that's what John is describing here. That his voice, and it's not just speaking of a loudness. He's kind of already done that with the trumpet. It's the authority. It's the power. It's the forcefulness. That the ground shakes under the weight of Jesus' voice. Right? That's the idea. And the closest thing John can say, it's like being next to a waterfall, man. It is raging power right next to me, yet I am safe right here. All right, verse 16. It says, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, 
And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who is dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven lamp, golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. In his right hand are these seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. Uh, We'll get to the stars here in a minute, but the double-edged sword, uh, it's a powerful picture. And it's one we don't quite understand because we don't use swords, not even in in military combat or anything like that. But in the day, understand that that was war. That was combat, was the sword. And there's, there's two different descriptions of a similar sword when it comes to uh, this description. So in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, it describes that his word is like a double-edged sword, right? It's able to cut between the bone and the marrow and the spirit. and you know, Well, that's a description of a small sword. This is like the Romans would use for close combat. It was for uh, fast movement. It was light, and it was strong, and it was sharp. But the sword that's described that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a large broadsword, also used in combat, but the idea was clearing the field. It was big, mighty strokes. It was getting everyone out of the way. And that's what's used here. And his word does both. His word, it can be sharp and precise and work right into our heart, but it can also level the kingdoms of the earth. His countenance is like the sun in its strength. Remember, John is speaking of one of the few that had the experience of being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Remember that John and a couple of the other guys are up there, and Jesus is transformed before them, and they see him in his glory. Again, at that time, as much as they could take. But that pales into comparison to what he sees now. That The idea that it's the sun in midday, in its strength, that you just can't quite, you know, look completely at the glory of Jesus before him. He can't fully take it in, right? Guys, boys probably did this more than girls, but you do the the sun stare, right? It's a horrible game. I can stare at it for three seconds, you know, and then you don't see anything else for the rest of the day. Don't do that. But that's kind of how I picture John afterwards, like, oh, man, man, just spots everywhere. Just His countenance was so bright by his glory that he just, again, can't take it in. In fact, this is more than John can take, and he falls to the ground as dead. Now, again, that's not a small thing. You know, I, I've had people say, oh, see, John was, was slain in the spirit here. Okay, but... I mean, it, it was the power of God like no one's ever seen before. And that when he dropped, even John was like, I thought I was dead. 
That's, that's how intense it was. It was just I lost consciousness. I fell to the ground at his feet as dead. And uh, I love that. I just absolutely love it. I had a, a lady years ago. And, you know, during worship, I, I love that we've got the freedom. Stand up, sit down, however you want to worship, right? But she came to me. She said, well, I think everyone should stand up throughout the entire worship service. Why? And she said, well, if Jesus walked through the door, we would all stand up and, and salute. And I said, no, if Jesus walked through the door, we would fall at his feet as though dead. <laughs> and it's hard to sing like that. So we'll just keep doing what we're doing, right? <laughs> John's so overwhelmed by this vision that he physically cannot take it, and he just drops to the ground, absolute overload, and collapses under the weight of seeing Jesus. And then the Lord puts his right hand on it. And it get, to me, again, this is how I hear it. I think this is where the gentle voice is heard, right? From the, the roar of mighty waters... And, and the loud blast of the trumpet to putting his hand on John's shoulder and speaking comfort to him. Hey, John, don't be afraid. It's me, right? That's the idea. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am him who lived and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to Hades and death. Jesus is saying, I have absolutely conquered hell and death for all time. And the proof is, I hold the keys. The keys are the, the symbol of authority, the, the symbol of absolute ownership. So he didn't just barely make it out. He didn't just barely conquer. He absolutely owns it now and has full authority over hell and death. It's not the devil who owns that. It's not the world who owns it. It's Jesus. He has the keys. And again, in verse 19, we come to the outline, the things which he has seen, chapter 1, things which are, chapter 2 and 3, the things which must, much, must take place after this, four, chapters 4 through 22. And then I like the fact that when he gets to verse 20, he just tells him what these things that he's seen means. Right? I mean, the symbolism... Is, is great. And I've had people like that'll jump into this and they'll start going, well, I think the lampstands are this and I think the stars are this. I'm like, just read a few more verses and it'll tell you what those things are. You don't need to guess. And I like that Jesus doesn't go, well, what do you think they are, John? Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, give me your guess. You're a big disciple. Go ahead. You know, he just tells them, let me tell you what they are. The seven stars in my right hand are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, some people will take that and go, okay, so those are like the guardian angels over the churches? Uh, it's, it's simpler than that. Is, the word angel simply means messenger. Now, sometimes that means an angelic or heavenly messenger, and that's what we usually think of. But in this case, it's just referring to the leadership of the church. It's the messenger, the pastor of the church. And because as he identifies and as he writes these letters, why would Jesus write a letter through John to an angelic being that he's already in contact with? He's writing it to the pastor, to the leadership of the church, to the messenger of that church. 
And again, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Um, there's a couple things that I, I love about this. And again, it'll make more sense as we go on and start reading about these seven churches. But they're not doing so good. Five out of the seven are doing horrible. Two out of the seven are barely getting by. And so Jesus is going to write these, this letter through John to convict, but also to encourage. That they need to see him, Jesus, in a new way. They need to understand the things that they've gone off track on and get back on track by seeing Jesus. Now, again, one of the things I love about this is that when it comes to these churches, again, specifically five that have lost their focus and lost their way, Jesus is still in their midst. He's in the midst of the seven lampstands. He's right there. He hasn't excused himself, like, I, I don't like you guys anymore. I don't like what you're doing, and removed himself from the situation. He's right there in their midst. And these pastors, these messengers of the church, he holds them in his hand. To me as a pastor, that is the most comforting thing. <laughs> to go, Lord, you got me. You got our church. You're in the midst of us. We start going off track, you're going to correct us. That's what we want. We want you in our midst. We want to be in your hand. Because he wants to bring them and us back into a right relationship, back into a right place. And again, as I mentioned several times, it's all in how they see Jesus. We all have a picture of what Jesus is like. You know, I said like the t-shirt and jeans kind of Jesus. I, I like that. That's how I kind of relate with Jesus. But I, I know that there are certain ways and certain times we kind of try and fit Jesus into our little Jesus-shaped box. And we're frustrated when he doesn't fit there, right? And so as we study these seven churches, that's exactly what they're for, is to show us he doesn't fit in that box at all. So the question is, is how do we personally see Jesus? And are we ready to be corrected on that? Because we should be corrected as we read these about these seven churches, as we see God at work within these churches going, look, this is what you're doing right, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is how you need to understand me in a new, in a new way. This is for us. And my hope, my prayer, and I'm going to ask you guys to be praying the same thing for us as we are really underway on this journey of Revelation that you guys would all be praying that we as a church and we individually, we would be blown away by the Jesus that we see. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.